Have you ever wondered, why is that? I'm your host, Travis, and in this podcast, I'm looking forward to exploring it with you. Welcome back to Why Is That Podcast. This week we are going to explore one of my favorite oxymorons in the whole world, jumbo shrimp. One means very large and the other very small, the perfect combination and a rather interesting origin. Before we dive in, I do have one brief announcement. I have a few things that will cause me to be unable to spend as much time as I would like on the show over the next few months, and this will result in a longer wait time between episodes. So with that said, for the next five episodes, we will be releasing in four-week intervals rather than our usual two. I do apologize for any inconvenience, but if you need a suggestion for other shows to listen to in this period, send me an email, tweet, Facebook message, or various other communication methods, and I'll be happy to suggest something for you. Okay, that does it for our announcement. Let's get back to our regularly scheduled program. On July 5th, 1810, a man was born in the small town of Bethel, Connecticut. As the son of an innkeeper, the brightest colors filled his head, and a million dreams kept him awake. No, I'm not talking about Hugh Jackman or Donny Osmond. I'm talking about the greatest showman, Phineas Taylor Barnum, best known as the founder of what would come to be known as the Barnum and Bailey Circus, and today, our central character. At the age of 24, Barnum moved to New York after selling his small store and having gained fame in the liberal movement due to his editorials attacking religious oppression, local church elders, and militant Calvinism. That means by the time he was living in New York, he already had some experience as an entrepreneur and in controversial mass media. Over the next 50 years, he would prove himself a master of both. In 1835, Barnum got his start in show business when he met a promoter named R.W. Lindsay. Lindsay had been traveling the country in an unsuccessful attempt to show off his slave as a curiosity. Barnum thought he could have more success and offered to buy the slave from Lindsay. Technically speaking, slavery had been abolished in New York on July 4, 1827, but there were always ways around such laws. For Barnum, rather than outright buy the slave, he instead leased her for the period of one year for the sum of $1,000. The slave's name was Joyce Heth. Barnum billed Heth as the greatest natural and national curiosity in the world. Barnum created posters to advertise her appearances, and I will quote one directly to explain why she was thought of as such a great curiosity. Joyce Heth is unquestionably the most astonishing and interesting curiosity in the world. She was the slave of Augustine Washington, the father of General Washington, and was the first person who put clothes on the unconscious infant, who, in after days, led our heroic fathers to glory to victory, and freedom. To use her own language when speaking of the illustrious father of this country, she raised him. Joyce Heth was born in the year 1674 and has consequently now arrived at the astonishing age of 161 years. Joyce's appearance certainly fit the bill. One observer reported that she is a mere skeleton covered with skin and her whole appearance very much resembles a mummy of the days of the pharaohs, taken entire from the catacombs of Egypt. Barnum advertised that Heth weighed only 46 pounds. She was blind, toothless, had deeply wrinkled skin, her nails were said to curl out like talons, and she was paralyzed in both legs and one arm, likely the result of a stroke. Crowds would gather to gawk at her decrepit body, and some would even muster the nerve to touch her. 
The main draw, though, were her stories of the father of the country. She would describe how she witnessed the birth of dear little George, and how she had clothed and breastfed him. She told stories of his adolescence, and the crowds loved to laugh at her stories about the Redcoats. Barnum started his display of Heth with a two-and-a-half-week stay at Niblo's Garden in New York before embarking on a northern tour through Providence, Boston, Hingham, Lowell, Worcester, Springfield, Hartford, New Haven, Bridgeport, Newark, Albany, and several towns in between, including multiple stops back in New York. Barnum would force Heth to perform in these gigs for 10 to 12 hours a day, and it is believed that Barnum made between $1,000 and $1,500 per week for the duration of the tour, which was a remarkable amount for a showman of the day. The reason that Barnum succeeded where Lindsay had failed is that instead of trying to steer clear of controversy, Barnum dove right in. He would plant stories that Heth was a fraud before he even arrived in cities. He would publicly defend the stories as authentic, and this would create a need in the people to see for themselves so they could decide if this old slave woman was really as old as they said, and whether or not she had known the greatest American of all time. Barnum further stoked the flames by playing up the controversies related to whether or not Heth was still a slave, who owned her if she was, and who was profiting from her exhibits. Heightening the controversy was the role a 161-year-old black woman might play in the world of eugenics. How was she able to live for so long? Was it due to her race? Was it due to her status as a slave? Was it something else entirely? Was she even the real thing? One of the more outlandish theories was that Heth wasn't even human, and rather an automaton made of rubber, whalebone, and springs, with her voice supplied by a ventriloquist offstage. Barnum played into every single controversy to heighten people's need to see Heth. As they say, there's no such thing as bad press. The toll of the road, performances, and old age was eventually too much for Heth, and she passed away after seven months as a traveling exhibit on February 19, 1836. The death fueled even more controversy, and Barnum chose to take advantage of it by holding a public autopsy to prove that Heth had been the real thing. The autopsy was attended by some 1,500 people, with the price of admission being 50 cents each. After performing the autopsy, the doctor proclaimed Miss Heth had actually only been around 79 or 80 years old. Barnum responded by calling the death a hoax while claiming that Heth had actually moved to Europe, or at other times claiming that he had been fooled just like everyone else. The autopsy kept Barnum in the news for months after Heth's death, and Barnum's career as one of the most successful showmen in history was firmly underway. Much of the information about Joyce Heth was from the book The Showman and the Slave by Benjamin Reese. If you want to learn more about her story, I would highly suggest it. As for Heth's final resting place, Barnum would eventually admit that she was buried respectfully in the hometown of Bethel, Connecticut, although his reports on Joyce cannot always be believed considering the way he stoked the controversy surrounding his life and changed his story how he pleased to suit his audience, especially after the Civil War when slavery was viewed rather differently than before. The story of Joyce Heth is only tangentially related to our jumbo shrimp. She helped to lay the foundation on which P.T. Barnum would build his show business empire. It also shows how Barnum was a master manipulator of the press to get people interested in his curiosities, which would be very important to half of our explanation. The years following Heth's death saw mixed success for Barnum as a recession set in with the Panic of 1837. His fortunes changed when he purchased Scudder's American Museum and turned it into Barnum's American Museum. He added attractions like hot air balloon rides off the roof and a lighthouse lamp. 
The lamp attracted attention given that he would shine it all throughout the day, which was quite the sight given that the museum was located on Broadway in the heart of downtown New York. The live acts and various curiosities that he hired, though, were what set Barnum's museum apart. The Fiji Mermaid, General Tom Thumb, the world's first aquarium, and Josephine Clofula, also known as the Bearded Lady, were among the most popular. He invented beauty contests and baby contests. The conjoined twins Chang and Eng Bunker became national stars known as the Siamese Twins. This name persisted even though the twins were Thai and the act's name became a synonym for conjoined twins in general due to their popularity and rarity of their condition. Contemporaries nicknamed Barnum the Shakespeare of Advertising as his real talent was in promoting these so-called curiosities. He crafted compelling stories to attract people to his museum. Barnum is often credited with the line, a sucker is born every minute, and while no contemporary source supports him ever saying that, it is a pretty apt description of his philosophy toward making money through hoaxes and controversy. Barnum's methods may sound rather crass, and he would definitely not fit into our modern sensibilities for the view towards other races and persons with disabilities. However, one positive side of what might seem a monstrous bit of taking advantage of the less fortunate was that Barnum reportedly paid very good wages. In addition, his showcases of the other helped some people see these historically disadvantaged people as a little more equal. Obviously, Barnum himself greatly profited from these shows, and he definitely played into stereotypes to make his money, but I did want to point out that many were far better off working for him than someone else of that day. As Barnum and his museum grew in popularity, he was forever looking for new and interesting acts to get people in the building. Each new act or curiosity would receive its own overhyped publicity campaign. Barnum once said, Without promotion, something terrible happens. Nothing. Between 1841 and 1865, Barnum's American Museum hosted some 38 million visitors, which is remarkable when you consider that the population of the United States, according to the 1860 census, was only 32 million, and that from 1861 to 1865 the Civil War raged. In 1865, the museum caught fire and burned to the ground. No people were killed in that blaze, but the stuffed animals, including the Fiji mermaid, were destroyed and two whales boiled alive in their tanks. This nearly bankrupted Barnum, but he persevered by re-establishing the museum at a new site, but when in 1868 that one too burned down, he chose to retire from the museum business. In 1871, Barnum was persuaded to come out of retirement and to lend his name and know-how to a circus. It was called P.T. Barnum's Great Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. In press releases, Barnum would describe it as the greatest show on earth. Soon this phrase was included in the circus's name. Over the next 10 years, Barnum's Circus was performing well, but their chief competitor, the Cooper and Bailey Circus, was outperforming them. Barnum proposed merging the shows, and on March 28, 1881, the two groups officially agreed to merge into what became known as Barnum and Bailey's Circus. It would remain successful and in operation until the year 2017. The ringmaster and part owner of the circus was named James Anthony Bailey. He had been discovered as a teenager by a circus advertising advance man who also happened to be the nephew of the circus pioneer Hachalea Bailey. James would apprentice in the circus and would change his name to James Anthony Bailey in honor of the nephew who had given him his first real job in show business. Hekeliah was famous for having his circus include the Indian elephant Old Bet, 
and the animal always created quite a sensation as it had been one of the first elephants to ever come to America. James Bailey had been groomed in the tradition that included elephants in the circus, and his later circuses always featured the great animals. When Bailey merged his circus with Barnum's, he stayed on as ringmaster and insisted on the need of a great elephant to headline the show. Barnum and Bailey searched the world for the right elephant to place as a centerpiece of a show that claimed to be the greatest show on earth. Together they found an African bush elephant who lived in captivity at the London Zoo in England. The elephant was named Jumbo, and he had been born in the Sudan around Christmas 1860. His mother was killed by poachers, and the infant Jumbo was captured by big game hunters. Jumbo was sold and transported multiple times until he ended up at the London Zoo in 1865. A London zookeeper named Anoshan Anathajerisi named the elephant Jumbo. He did not release why or how he came up with the name, but there are two main theories. The first is that it comes from a variation of a Swahili word. The candidates are the word for hello, which is Jumbo, and the word Jumbe, which means chief. It could even be a combination and mean something akin to a chief, but it is more likely just a variation of one of the words. One difficulty in identifying the word origins is that not much is known about the zookeeper. The most popular alternate theory to the Swahili origin would involve Anoshan being of Indian descent, in which case he might have named the elephant after a giant rose apple tree known as the Jambu. The tree is said to grow on the mythical Mount Miru with fruits that grew to be as large as elephants. It was in London that Jumbo first became world famous. His giant size alone drew large crowds. Jumbo was commonly believed to be among the largest elephants in the world. He was known to give rides to children on his back and counts the children of Queen Victoria as his most famous riders. When Barnum learned about such a fantastic elephant, he knew he had to have it for his circus. In 1882, the superintendent of the London Zoo accepted Barnum's offer of 2,000 British pounds, which converted to around 10,000 US dollars at the time, to purchase the elephant due to Jumbo's growing aggression. The sale created a large public outcry throughout Britain, and it is said that 100,000 schoolchildren wrote letters to the Queen begging her not to sell. Despite the outcry and a lawsuit against the zoo, the sale went through and Barnum knew he had found the perfect elephant to build his show around. Predictably, Barnum used the outcry to create buzz around the show, and even before Jumbo arrived in the United States, he was arguably the most famous elephant in the world. Once in New York, Jumbo became the star attraction of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. He always received top billing and was the subject of the majority of the promotion. Barnum claimed Jumbo was the largest elephant in the world. He was certainly the largest to ever set foot in America. Jumbo's first gig was an exhibition at the Madison Square Garden, and within three weeks, Barnum had recouped the money he spent to buy and transport Jumbo from London. The 31-week season that followed was the largest of the circus to date, and they earned $1.75 million on the back of their newest star. Jumbo's fame continued to grow. He never disappointed in a performance, and circus goers generally left the show even more impressed by the giant animal than when they had arrived. In 1884, Jumbo led a procession of 21 elephants across the Brooklyn Bridge to prove it was safe and would not collapse underneath such a weight. This was front-page news. The press loved him and regularly published fluff pieces about America's favorite elephant. Soon he was not just the most famous elephant in the world, but arguably the most famous animal. 
Jumbo's story, like that of many stories that include the phrase, ran off and joined the circus, does not have a very happy ending. On September 15, 1885, the circus performed in St. Thomas, Ontario. At the time, the circus routinely performed near train depots as it made transportation around the country easy. After the performance, Jumbo was led back to the train yard to be transported to their next tour stop. It is unclear exactly how it happened, but Jumbo and one of the smaller elephants ended up on a live track where an unscheduled locomotive rammed into them. Barnum theorized that Jumbo had been attempting to protect the small elephant who had wandered off, but while the small elephant suffered a broken leg, Jumbo was hit squarely and died within minutes. Jumbo's skeleton was sent to the American Museum of Natural History in New York to be studied and put on display. His heart was sold to Cornell University, and his hide was stretched and then stuffed. For the next two years, the stuffed Jumbo was transported with the circus and continued his role as a star attraction. Jumbo's stuffed body was eventually donated to Tufts University, where it became the school mascot. In 1975, the building burned down and Jumbo was destroyed. The ashes were collected and today sit in the athletic director's office in a peanut butter jar where they were originally collected. The popularity of Jumbo in life and death made him a household name in America and in England. When Barnum purchased Jumbo, he gave an interview to the Philadelphia Press and said the following, I tell you conscientiously that no idea of the immensity of the animal can be formed. It is a fact that he is simply beyond comparison. The largest elephants I ever saw are mere dwarfs by the side of Jumbo. The idea of the ginormous elephant spread into the collective consciousness of the English-speaking world. Over time, extremely large and Jumbo became synonymous. Shortly after Jumbo died, a cigar manufacturer in the city where Jumbo died introduced the Jumbo Cigar. It played off the huge news story of Jumbo's death and was the first reported time a product size was referred to as Jumbo. This became a common theme. For modern examples, see Jumbo Jets and the Jumbotron. In a way, it is similar to the way we might refer to a large person as a tank or a mammoth. Throughout the 20th century, the word continued to grow in popularity. Jumbo was such a star that he became the quintessential circus elephant. Even by 1941, over 50 years after his death, when Americans thought circus elephant, they thought Jumbo. This is exemplified in the Disney classic movie Dumbo, as the main character was named Jumbo Jr. before he was ridiculed for his big ears and nicknamed Dumbo. In that way, Jumbo inspired the word for large and an insult for dumb people. The phrase mumbo-jumbo and jumbo to describe a clumsy person do predate the life of Jumbo the Elephant and may have played a role in the word's transition into everyday slang and use. However, despite those words existing previously, it is agreed that the large connotation derived from Jumbo the Elephant and that the word's popularity largely stemmed from Jumbo's popularity. As for shrimp, the word can be attested to as meaning a slender, edible marine crustacean to the early 14th century. It is believed to have derived from the Old Norse word skrapa, which meant thin person, and that it was related to the Old English word skrimin, which meant to shrink. From those origins, it can be found that the word shrimp derived as a way to describe small creature or as a verb for shrinking. By the end of the 14th century, it had already come to mean a puny person in English. It is less clear how the word shrimp became attached to the small crustacean. 
According to Anatoly Lieberman, no other Germanic or Romance language connects the marine creature to a word associated with small the way English connects shrimp to puny. As a result, we know that shrimp entered the English lexicon to refer to thin cattle, puny humans, and delicious seafood in 14th century England, but we do not know the connection between small, thin, and crustacean. Nevertheless, in today's world, we use both meanings interchangeably. In the 20th century, as multiple products started to use the phrase jumbo in their marketing to note a large size, so too did the seafood market. The designation of crustaceans as shrimp can be a little complicated, as the accepted decapod crustaceans that fit the designation of shrimp can vary. Some include just caridea, and other include both caridea and dendrobranchiata. Others have nearer or wider definitions based on who is doing the categorization. However you prefer to categorize your shrimp, there are still many different types and sizes of shrimp. The largest type are commonly referred to as jumbo shrimp, which, given shrimp's alternate definition of small, makes it a comical oxymoron. Some commercial designation attempts to distance itself from the oxymoron by referring to it as jumbo prawn, but we are not going to get into that piece. The marketers of Jumbo Shrimp found success in this name scheme, and while I could not find who used it first, it has stuck ever since. So there we have it. Jumbo meaning large comes from one of the most famous animals of the 19th century, who was reputed for his size, whereas we do not know the exact origin of shrimp as marine animal, but do know that the small designation comes from Old Norse and Old English. Shrimp came to define the creature in the 14th century, and then sometime in the 20th century, the large species of shrimp came to be referred to with the emerging new large-sized designation of jumbo, thus creating our modern jumbo shrimp. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Is That? Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app, including Acast, Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and wherever else podcasts are streamed. That does it for episode 31, Jumbo Shrimp. We'll be back in four weeks with our next episode. Until then, cheers.